The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater with us as usual. And the focus of today's podcast is sport in China, as Beijing prepares to become the first city in history to host both a summer and a winter Olympics. We'll discuss sport's impact on culture, politics and society, plus sport in China since the 2008 Games and how international leagues such as the NBA, the English Premier League, the WTA operate in a challenging region that offers an enormous market for business. Our guests today are Mark Dreyer, a China sports insider and author of Sporting Superpower and Insider's View on China's Quest to Be the Best. And also William Ni, who is the Research and Advocacy Coordinator at Chinese Human Rights Defenders. The whole point of this podcast is for us to look at the interaction really between sports, politics and business in China. That's the idea behind it. Let's see, let's see where we end up with the discussion. Though. And Mark, I suppose if I start with you, let's take the period that is bookended by the two Olympics, the, the summer of Beijing in 2008 and now the winter of Beijing in, in 2022. How has sport changed in China in those 14 years? Post-Olympics, it was a bit of a lull. And there were some there were some high points. There was Li Na winning the French Open in 2011, again in 2014. But it didn't really pick up again until towards the end of 2014. There was a big policy document which was released. And this was designed to try to build the largest sports economy in the world. Basically, China had looked at, uh, they were looking for other drivers for economic growth. And they looked at the US and thought, well, you know, roughly 3% of US GDP comes from sports. And in China, it's a fraction of 1%. So, hey, we can build something here, which is a new driver. It ticks all the boxes of domestic consumption and a healthy, happier population. So so we can sort of, you know, let's have a put a 10-year target in place. China loves these big, big, grand, ambitious goals. And then that really kind of kick-started the development of the sports industry. We saw soccer, first of all, uh, go through some, some boom years in, in 2016 and 17, and already kind of gone, gone through the boom and bust cycle more recently. Um, the second one very quickly following was was winter sports, because in summer 2015, that was when the, China was awarded these games. And so basically China thought, right, we have seven years to, to to get our act together when it comes to winter sports, getting athletes in place, building ski resorts and ice rinks. And so they're not there yet, but they're well on the way. And I think that growth is continuing. And then the third wave was sort of a bit more organic, uh, where we've seen the rise of what people call mass participation sports. So running and, and swimming and general fitness and yoga and gyms and, and that sort of stuff, which which is you know good to see. It's 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 what the country needs, I think, and, and away from a this obsession for with children, away from a pure academics, just basically more well-rounded lifestyles. So that was started by government policy, but I think it's really been taken up by a more of an, an organic push um you know drive from 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 the population so how much has external sport been used to grow the internal sporting economy well that's a good question from whose perspective from china's perspective yeah probably not very much i mean china wants to create its own leagues it wants to develop the chinese super league and the chinese basketball association into into top leagues to you know, rival what you have overseas. Right now, they're light years away from that and going backwards in many fa- in, in many facets. You know, if we look at the sports industry, when they started to build the winter sports growth here ahead of the Olympics, 
Uh, President Xi Jinping visited the Olympics for the first time, the Olympic site in 2017. And he was wearing an Anta branded jacket. Anta is a Chinese sportswear company. You know, how often do senior leaders from any country wear branded clothes? It was not uh, an accident. It was, it was extremely significant. And that was basically him and, and China saying, we are building our own sports economy here with our own brands and our own sports properties and our own leagues. And, you know, we will use international input where it's relevant, but long-term, this is about us. We are growing our own leagues. We are growing our own competitions. How much can they grow, say, Chinese basketball without their fans having an interest in the NBA? So how much access is there within China to external sporting competitions? When the politics don't get in the way, which they often have done over the last two to three years in particular, um, there's a lot of access because, you know, that all the, the top five European soccer leagues are, are widely watched in China. Uh, the NBA was was probably the number one sports league uh, in the country in just in terms of interest. China is not in a position where it can replace those leagues because the interest is there, but it's also in a position where it can control access to teams and leagues. And we've seen, you know, certain teams and leagues being blocked. Um overnight because of something someone's done or said. But again, I think that there's this disconnect between the the political side. And, and one of the things that, that, you know, in the book that I just put out, it, it was about how these three things that you mentioned, sports and politics and business, it's almost impossible to separate the three here in China, I think more than any other country. And there's this real disconnect between this political leadership from a top-down approach saying, you must do this, that, and the other, and then from a sports, you know, particularly in soccer, where it's where it's grassroots, it's bottom up, it's just fundamentally incompatible. The sports people are just, you know, ha- with basically both hands often tied behind their back because they're trying to make good sporting decisions to promote sports, but they're being told to follow kind of political maxims and stuff that just don't fit in in any way. And so I think that has where they've really got into to trouble. You know, China says the mandate comes down: build your own sports league. Well. It doesn't quite work like that. It's not. It's not quite that simple. I'm really interested by this. 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 This point you make about how everything comes back to politics in China and their and their struggles to sort of kind of grow sports from the bottom up, which is you know the, the way most of us have done it over a very 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 long period of time, right? So that's that's another sort of factor here. This sort of time issue. And and I went to Beijing in 2008. I found it absolutely fascinating. I know it's a dreadful cliche, but it really did feel like a coming out party. It felt a very political games. I was there at the opening ceremony, and it's funny you talk about the the you know the branding. Well, wasn't the opening ceremony the biggest branding exercise of all time? You had Li Ning, the famous gymnast who has the biggest clothes brand at the time in China, running around. You know, it was the most outrageous piece of guerrilla marketing I've ever seen. I spoke to a Brit in Beijing who was trying to set up grassroots football leagues. And he was telling me about his struggles with the sort of the local FA, the China, you know, and and all the sort of people he had to talk to with the concepts of grassroots sport. Why would someone like me or him, you know, a bloke who's not really good play sport? What is the point if you're not going to win a medal? And, and he was sort of saying, we've got more golf courses in Beijing than we have football pitches. To me, that kind of was I've been spending this time in, in Beijing observing China winning medals left, right and center. They won them. They, they came top of the medal table. They won 51 goals at home. And, and just this, this, you know, just sweeping the board in table tennis and diving the things they always do. well. But just the other sports as well. And I was thinking, right. OK, here we go. But 
Where's grassroots sport? Has that happened? To some extent, yes. When you have political mandates, it can help uh, to some extent. You, if, you, if you basically say, well, football must be in schools, you're obviously going to get some, some, some benefits there. Uh, you're going to get a, a larger base of, of people. Uh, you know, I, I talked about that third wave of, of mass participation. We have seen a more organic, more healthy development. And I think, and that hasn't necessarily come from the government. That's just come from more educated and, and more globally minded populations sort of thinking, you know, sports is, is an important part of life today. And there's a place for sports in, in the fact that in, 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 whereas there wasn't seen as a place for sports in the past. So it is happening, but I think in terms of building the grassroots bottom of base to the pyramid from which you're going to get, there's still this disconnect between that grassroots base and the top of the pyramid. There's no like seamless pyramid up and down, like from a football perspective. If you are playing the Premier League and then you fall down the divisions, basically in China, there's nowhere to go. There is no, you know, you can't go back into Sunday League and like a Jamie Vardy, then get picked up and work your way back up to the top. It, it, there's no possible way that that could happen here. Uh, and I think that is that's that's really important. So it's basically there's still the state focus on elite sports, basically doing all the pol making political decisions. And that's partly why a lot of it doesn't go right, because the, the football people or the sports people aren't able to do what they want to do. And, and as you mentioned, it's short term thinking. It's it's politicians trying to get quick wins where really you need a 20 year plan. You've got to start with long term goals. China has turbocharged everything, or not everything, but a, a lot of things in its economy in the past and so it thinks well, why can't we do this with sports well the difference is you're talking about people you can't speed up the development uh, of a person <laughs> right um yeah, i mean they, they haven't figured try. it out yet so. yeah can you not move up because the structure isn't there or you can't move up because the system doesn't allow it it's both but it depends on the sports um, and and we still have this we still have this balance in China. China looks at the Olympic sports, and we're seeing it now with the Winter Olympics. You know, they'll target the ones which are less globally competitive because it can make some it can catch up pretty quickly. But China deep down knows that football, for example, is still the biggest game in the world, and that's still really what brings it glory and and what the people, what the population wants to see success in. Last night, the Chinese internet absolutely exploded. China was playing Vietnam. I don't know if you saw this. They were long gone, long out of qualification for, for, for World Cup, um, you know, contention, even if not mathematically. They lost 3-1 to Vietnam, scoring a very, very late goal. They were, they were very quickly down 2 nothing, And it was a disaster. And, and I think Chinese fans, long-suffering as they have been, you know, it was, it was a new low even for them. <laughs> you know, just the memes that were going around. Like, they know that Olympic success is not the same as success in a in a, a a real sport is a bit harsh but um you know a sport that is that is is played by the world you know whereas table tennis it's you know the world championships are often nothing against table tennis as a sport but it's basically a domestic championship every time it's the world championships well i mean i i completely agree on, on the football thing and we will come back to that i mean i, I just looked at their ranking it's sort of 75th 76th now i think but i think that's likely to fall isn't it and this this world cup qualifying campaign has been a disaster they actually suspended the league for it they had they had the guy that there was a, it was a football legend wasn't it and it's just it's just gone horribly wrong but on this issue of how china has targeted certain sports you know kind of low-hanging fruit if you like i don't mean to be mean to those sports but certainly sports where you can where you can and other countries have done this as well south korea is a really good example and and well look we in, in the uk we've done it as well right certain sports where where money and technical know-how and a good plan about how you transfer talent you could definitely get good pretty quick the big big global team sports 
are much, much tougher nuts to crack. Football's the obvious one. Basketball's the one I remember because it it was one of the one of the, my most well, it was one of the most memorable occasions in Beijing. I was I was at that famous basketball game, uh, USA China. I remember both Bushes were there. Um, uh, President Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao, was there. We were locked in four hours before. The place was unbelievable. I've never I've never sort of felt so much. Well, it was it was exciting. I mean, we were sort of we were actually sort of kept in our seats. I remember we couldn't really even go to the lure or anything whilst whilst the presidents came in. Remarkable. And the game was competitive for about two minutes before America just started to absolutely smash China. And, and it, it was it was you know you were you were just watching this and you were thinking oh here we go All right this is this is the this is America slapping China around and and, and look they they, just, they picked the wrong sport right they should have gone they should have done it in diving or something it would have been a but anyway that that was the moment that the, the presidents were there now 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 William I want to bring you in now as American so much when we talk about China is about politics really isn't it and this tension with the West and one of the things I keep picking up is post Beijing 2008, and certainly around Mark's brilliant point around President Xi's 2014 directive, we're gonna be, we're gonna be big and we're gonna make a big sports economy. Every single club athlete league I spoke to had a China plan, was obsessed with it. Some to the point of distraction, they're almost forgetting every other market in the world. They've, they almost forgot the USA for a while. That's not what I hear anymore. I increasingly hear China is either just another market or it's more trouble than it's worth. Can you understand why? I think one thing to understand is that um, China, um, you know, has had the same type of government. Uh, obviously, it's had a communist government that has tried to rule everything. And the Communist Party is the dominant force in China. Once Xi Jinping came to power, he, he redefined things. He, he wanted to make the Communist Party, you know, in his words, North, South, East, West, Army, military, society, the Communist Party rules it all. And he has taken control of business much more than in the past. I mean, it wasn't just 10 years ago, you had Wang Yang, who was the former party secretary of Guangdong, the province near uh, Hong Kong that has 90 million people, who was saying almost libertarian things like, the, you know, it's not the Communist Party or the government's point to rule everything. We need to kind of have uh, society rule itself. This has all now gone away, and the Communist Party is now inserting itself um, into business. Um, there, 2021 uh, was a year where it really tried to crack down on the tech industry and take over much more control over algorithms, trying to gain you know power back from Alibaba and other tech uh, titans. You know, and and to some extent, you know, you might say, well, these tech titans might actually potentially pose a threat to the party. So it's not, you know, in some ways it's not unreasonable. But I think that because of this, um, because the party is trying to control everything, it does have an impact on sports where an employee from the NBA could say something, um, you know, go Hong Kong, and this could cause waves for the NBA and, and problems. And I don't really think in an alternative universe that if Xi Jinping weren't in power, that that type of control would have happened 10 years ago. The pandemic has made things much more difficult because every day, if a you know if a if ten people have the virus in a city, the whole city can go on lockdown. And what can that cause in terms of disruptions of sports? And um, is another issue. 
And of course, it's much more difficult to travel to China. I mean, I, I, I know so many people who have basically been unable to travel to China for the last two years because of the, you know, the huge quarantine windows. So I think those are some of the issues that we're facing now. One thing I wanted to ask you is, I, I remember in the run-up to 2008, there was some commentary about um, China's human rights record. And I remember, I think, Bush, whilst he was in Beijing, spoke about religious freedoms. I think he was actually referring more to Christianity at the time. I mean, so it was sort of playing to his, his gallery. Um, but I don't remember it becoming dominant. I don't remember it becoming overwhelming. I don't remember anyone sort of worrying, you know, would, would, would people protest during medal ceremonies? It, 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 was, it was one of the stories, but it wasn't an overwhelming story. What's changed? Well, you know, I think that um, the 20, 20, 2008 Olympics is quite different from now. I mean, just to give you a little bit of context, I first went to China in 2001. Um, and I remember going there, I, in 2002, I was a judge at a speech competition <laughs> in a mall in Beijing. And the question that I had to ask the contestants was, what is your view of the Beijing Olympics and will it bring people to the world? And every contestant had a well-formulated speech saying, the Beijing Olympics will bring the world to China and allow the world to understand China. And it, uh, you cannot overestimate how much the Beijing 2008 Olympics mattered to, to Chinese people. Now, at the same time, human rights groups did see this as one of the points of leverage, and especially in Tibet, um, where many Tibetan groups tried to use this as a way to bring uh, focus to the Tibet issue. And of course, in, in March of 20, uh, 2008, there were protests across the Tibetan plateau. And in France, when the Olympic ceremony, the torch relay, was interrupted by Tibetan protesters. So there was a degree of protest. And I think it's fair to say that that created a backlash actually, because people weren't really aware of the international context, you know, due to the fact that there is censorship within China, people don't really understand the context of those, those protests. Um, and so I know many Chinese people had a backlash against that. So there were some protests in 2008, but it's not anything like we are seeing now, I think, because China knows it can host the Olympics. It knows it can have good venues. It knows that it can host events. The IOC trusted it because it was such a good country in terms of you know, doing the logistics. So I don't think it means the same amount to, to local people. And at the same time, uh, China now is engaged in human rights abuses that are just you know, un unimaginable, even compared to 10 years ago most notably in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which is an area you know, three times the size of France out in the western part of China. Um, you know, starting from 2017, they detained more than one million Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities, um, putting them in so-called re-education camps or putting them in prison. Um, so it's just a vastly different context and groups, many groups are calling for a diplomatic boycott because they know when you had the opening ceremony of 2008, it was just this amazing thing. But China is going to milk this, uh, or the, the Xi Jinping government is going to try to use the Olympics to gain diplomatic recognition and try to show the domestic population that everyone recognizes and respects the Chinese government and Chinese policies, when in fact, you know, this is a point of contention. So there's a diplomatic boycott and some countries are now participating in that. So I really think that, you know, 2008 and, you know, th this Olympics is really 
a very different context. You've documented that some of the some of the cases that that you have researched within your role. I don't think I'm alone, and I'm sure Matt probably feels something similar in all of this. That I've covered Olympics and World Cups and whatever it may be around the world, and and there are Moscow 2018, the World Cup in Russia in 2018. I think a lot of a lot of UK journalists spent a lot of time thinking. Are we seeing what we're what they want us to see? How much are we being influenced as we go around the country? What is being controlled? What isn't being controlled? There's an uncomfortable nature of going to these events that I think I'm right, Matt, aren't there? There are special tax rules for FIFA and the IOC that they don't pay tax on events. So when you do a World Cup in South Africa or a World Cup or a Olympics in, in Brazil and you see some of the poorest, poorest areas of that country, there is a guilt, speaking personally, there is a guilt that they really aren't benefiting from this event at all because nothing is going to trickle down to help them in a favela or in a township in outside Johannesburg. There feels like a social and a political guilt sometimes, I think, to a lot of us when going to a tournament in certain countries. And by the way, I'm not for one minute suggesting that the West is guilt-free when they hold tournaments either. That's really important to, to state. But is China different, William, to all the other examples that I've mentioned? Well, unfortunately, it's not. I mean, I think if you look especially at the 2008 Olympics, because that was happening in Beijing, it was also a time when all Chinese cities basically were going from their old self and reinventing themselves, um, tearing down much of the old cities, rebuilding new complexes, new high rises, new infrastructure. And during that Olympic Games, we had, um, you know, human rights groups documented just countless examples of destruction of homes, not fair compensation for those homes to build the venues. Um, so that was a particular thing with 2008. Now, I think with the, the Winter Olympics now, because it's in a more remote location, there's not as much of that issue in terms of um, the damage to individual people's lives and so I think that that might be a little bit different. You know, to be fair to the Chinese government, they did learn, going to your issue of mass participation, they did learn some of the lessons of 2008, where 2008, it was all about the glory of the state, you know, and trying to basically have as many Olympic medals as possible. And I, you know, as a person living in China during the time, was always, you know, shocked at how little people were playing many of the Olympic sports. People definitely played basketball. Um, and they played uh, football, soccer quite a bit, but um, many of the other Olympic sports, not as much. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, Xi Jinping and the government has put much more emphasis on getting participation in winter sports. I think that that has borne fruit to some extent. Just on the diplomatic boycotts that might be going mm -hmm. on uh, on these games, um, whilst that may have an effect at a political level, just give me an insight into Chinese society. I mean, are people going to watch on their, turn their television on and look at the, you know, a, a, a opening ceremony in a box and wonder where certain diplomats are? That that isn't going to cut through a, a kind of to the to the normal Chinese person, is it? Either William or Mark on that. It, yeah. It's more has an effect at, at at high Communist Party level. I'm guessing. You're right. I don't think the average viewer, the average person on the street who's watching the Olympics in China is going to notice very much if certain um, delegations aren't there. And they're certainly not going to say, 
um, in the domestic media that this is a, you know, other countries are diplomatically boycotting us and really bring that out. Do you see that a little bit of that um, commentary in English, you know, by Chinese diplomats on Twitter, for example, which is banned domestically? So I, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. The reason why human rights groups, Tibetan groups, Uyghur groups are saying this is because there's no domestic re remedies, you know, inside the country. You can't, if there's a problem, like, for example, there's a guy named Tashi Wangchuk, a Tibetan, who's saying, why are Tibetans only learning Chinese, you know? And so five years ago, he went to Beijing to try to file a lawsuit, um, you know, saying under Chinese law, we, we have the right, actually, under Chinese law to, to have uh, Tibetan in our schools. Now, he filmed that with a, uh, the, trying to bring a lawsuit. No law firm would take him. Um, he, the New York Times filmed him, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. So, you know, it's basically because of this context domestically where there's no avenues for redress that people have to go to this, um, go to the, you know, try to protest using the Olympics, even though it's a relatively minor point, you know, relatively uh, maybe not effective. But I do think it is one of the ways that the government can learn, you know, the Xi Jinping government can hear because they're probably living in an information bubble where they only hear positive things all the time. They can hear, no, actually, there's a lot of people who are disagreeing with what you're doing right now. And Mark, listening to your podcast, actually, recently, talking about the, the protests really won't be there at, at these games because of a lack of crowds, first first of all, and COVID situations, and, and the Rule 50 that you keep talking about on your on your podcast for, for from the ISE. But, but the protests will be, well, I'm guessing will be non-existent, really. I'm expecting there to be a number of pretty awkward press conferences because that's really where the athletes um, are, are able to voice their views. It's unlikely we're going to see big displays on the podium um, or on the field of play. I, I mean, it's possible, but I, I don't think it will happen. And, and you know, to William's point, like none of that's going to make it onto Chinese TV screens anyway. Right. There's there's a there's a 10 second delay or whatever it is. You know, they have control of their own broadcast, if not the the IOC feed. The IOC doesn't want to show any of that anyway. Um, and so there's no danger whatsoever that that will be be kind of tarnished to a domestic audience, you know, whether it's showing, you know, they'll focus on Putin and all the dignitaries who are there, not the ones who aren't. Um, in terms of the in terms of the protest, there's definitely going to be some awkward moments where Chinese athletes are probably asked about Xinjiang and they genuinely have no idea what's go what what they're being asked about because of the information, you know, just just uh, vacuum that exists in, in domestic media. And, and they sort of probably know, well, it's sensitive, don't want to even go there. And there's going to be athletes uh, from the West who are asked about uh, their views. And, and some of them might want to say some stuff and, and others might not. But yeah, it, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. But I think it's, it's important to say there's going to be the, the domestic coverage, which would be very, very different to, to the foreign coverage. And, um, and the, the, the Chinese narrative that we hear is, as William said, it's on Twitter. Uh, which the vast majority of Chinese people are not accessing. And it's in English language state media, which is directed only at an external. Mark, I, I wonder if I can ask you the same question I asked William, really. And and, and, and you're there. You you work in the sports industry. I, I imagine you get asked for your opinion on China and Chinese matters all the time by clubs and leagues and athletes. Do you think there's been a change in, if you like, global sport, Western sport, in how they approach China? The turning point for me was was the the Daryl Morey NBA tweet um, towards the end of 2019. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. 
companies and, and whether this was sports or otherwise, they'd sort of acted differently in China um, to, to, to overseas. And they'd been able to, if you will, get away with it. So, for example, there was often, you know, a brand, a luxury fashion brand or something like that. And they would be, you know, they'd get into trouble uh, domestically in China for, for having the wrong map or for saying that Taiwan's its own country or for, for classifying something as wrong, not having the right number of dashes on the map of you know, the South China Sea, all that sort of stuff. They'd put out an apology in Chinese on the social media and, and then basically keep their heads down for three or four months and wait until someone else was in the doghouse. And then they'd move on and they would kind of, you know, operate as normal. The NBA incident, and it happened to be a sporting incident, but I, I do think it was it was um, applicable across all industries, changed it because it was such a global incident and there was a backlash um, uh, uh, in the US in particular, but globally as to how the NBA were operating in China. And they put out parallel statements, uh, one in English and one in Chinese, and they were similar, but they weren't the same. And so people on both sides sort of said, well, hang on, why are you speaking out of one side of your mouth to, to one market and out of the other side of your mouth to the other? And that pissed off everyone. And so for the first time, and then people were really kind of had their eyes open to how companies were, were trying to engage uh, the Chinese market. And to do that successfully, you have to localize and you have to basically play by the Chinese rules. But suddenly the rest of the world was waking up and thinking, well, hang on, we don't like the fact that you're playing by Chinese rules because you're not Chinese and you know, you're supposed to play by our rules, whether you're in China or not. And so we're now at this, this sort of impasse where you can't have it both ways. There's no good answers to certain questions. like, uh, and, and so companies and, and sports leagues as well are, are getting to that point where they're having to choose. Um, and to your point earlier, Matt, like, is it, is it worth the trouble? Is it, is it, or is it no longer worth the trouble? You know, as someone who who has, you know, has an interest in, in a healthy development of the sports industry here, it pains me to say this, but but people are choosing. And as big a market as China is, it's not bigger than the rest of the world. So if people do have to choose, they're not going to choose China. China is the one that's going to lose out ultimately. Well, I, th I think that's really interesting because, you know, I mean, honestly, two, three years ago, maybe a bit longer, so many conversations I had were China first. Premier League was obsessed for a time. They're talking about India now. They've gone back to thinking about North America because it's easier. They're not going to get stroppy questions from people like me and press conferences saying, what do you think about? It's just, it's just unlikely. And look, of course, I mean, we, we, I think you're right about the Daryl Morey thing, changing stuff, because of course it was the Houston Astros. It was Yao Ming's team. It was just the timing of it. It was massive. But Meza Ozil, it, it, came, it came to English football pretty soon afterwards. Uh, Matt, I'm just uh, not an American, but I did live there for a couple of years. I'm just going to pull you up on your Houston oh, sorry. teams. Oh, sorry, Astros, you're right. Uh, yeah, sorry, Rockets, yeah. Rockets, Rockets, Rockets. You're right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the, the, the Meza Ozil case was was it when it sort of came home, came home, and we, yeah. you know, we we had a, an issue, a Daryl Morey type issue here. China's kind of fostered this ultra nationalism online that the government itself can't necessarily control because people can screenshot that and then put that into the domestic media, and it can go viral. Um, even though China's domestic media is heavily censored, it can go viral within minutes and then the government can maybe feel forced to react. And personally, I feel that this is probably the biggest risk of the Olympics is that someone says something about, um, let's say, Tibet or, or Xinjiang and the government can shut it down with censorship in, in a matter of minutes, but it can go viral maybe very quickly and the government will feel forced to react and maybe uh, criminally sanction an athlete. I mean, I think this is a low possibility, but you know, it's it's worth maybe discussing. Is that 
this could then force the government's hand where they feel torn between having a great Olympics and then also responding to their own kind of ultra-nationalistic domestic audience. There's no way to hide online. Um, and, and there's now people digging up uh, historical mistakes and so on. There, were, there was an incident last year uh, where the, the, the Xinjiang cotton thing became a big thing for, for a lot of sportswear manufacturers. And a statement that Nike had put out quietly, I think about eight or 12 months previously, um, and no one had noticed at the time, suddenly it was front page news. And, uh, you know, and it was viral on the Chinese Internet. And of course, then there was a massive nationalistic backlash. And so, again, people are trying to keep their heads down. You know, the the, the business perspective is to try to keep your heads down and, and, and stay out of trouble. But that's almost impossible to do these days. And so there was one classic example for, from football. And, and I don't know if you guys remember this. William, you probably will. Um, uh, <laughs> the French League were um, a couple of years ago where they were thinking, well, let's let's cater to the Chinese market. And so uh, they decided they were going to have an early kickoff in um, in France, uh, France. I believe it was a Lyon game. Um, and it was 1 p.m. there. And I think, you know, prime time Saturday evening. And the French fans were like, what's going on? We're still having our wine and cheese. At, you know, sorry about the lazy stereotype. But, you know, we're, it's lunchtime. We're, we don't want to be uh, playing our playing our game at that time. So the fans organized basically uh, cardboard cutouts everyone held out a color card in one entire end zone they all held it up at the uh, kickoff uh, which was being streamed live in china and it was a big tibetan flag so so immediately obviously <laughs> the um the, the the whole the whole stream got shut down and that was the end of uh, that was the end of la, la league's uh, you know inroads into china um and and fans basically were able to stop that in 20 minutes <laughs> you know and it, it, it's, it's quite easy from, from that point of view, you know, because China reacts so sensitively to, to these things that it, it basically says these are non-negotiable. You know, we, we, we will not compromise on these issues. That makes it very easy to kind of push the buttons for, from the other side. Just looking at some of your tweets. So Sitsipas' semi-final against Daniel Medvedev in the Australian Open, that wasn't seen in China because of a Sitsipas tweet from 20 months ago about Hong Kong. Is that right? Yeah, it, it didn't even really make it news because it was, you know, it was it was basically along the lines of what Daryl Morey had. Uh, um, I'd actually missed it at the time. And I thought, why is this not on, on CCTV? Because they've been having the rest of the tournament. And <laughs> really, yeah, he's basically he's basically on the blacklist uh, and will continue to be on the blacklist for, for who knows how long. Daryl Morey has 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 basically left uh, you know, Houston and then he's been rehired in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia's games aren't shown. So long memories here. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and just just moving it back to these Winter Olympics, but still talking about the athletes, how will the story be told around the Chinese freestyle skier who's 18, but she was born in America, wasn't she, Mark? Is that right? Born in America right, yeah. and, and still lives quite a lot of the time in America. But do you know how that story and that narrative is going to be played out domestically? I think there's a couple of ways, you know, the, 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 the propaganda way is it's a, it's a bit of a gift. You know, she's born and raised in the U S and she's actively choosing as a, as a potential triple Olympic gold medalist. I mean, she's, she's, she could very well win three gold medals. Uh, this is Eileen Gu for people who haven't yeah. heard of her, um, you know, choosing to, to compete for China, you know, for, from, uh, from her, you know, she, she grew up to to a, a Chinese mother and American father. She feels both Ch Chinese and American. Um, and, and, you know, from my point of view, that's what she is. She can only, of course, compete 
for for one nation you know there's there's cynics who sort of say well it's all about the money she's on billboards everywhere here um she's going to be embraced for sure because she's been very successful i think it just sort of depends on which media potentially you're you're reading whether they kind of go really with the you know returning to the motherland narrative or whether they just sort of celebrate her as a as a fantastic athlete but i think people will you know be inspired and and hopefully you know we hopefully they'll focus on on the positives that she can bring which is getting the next generation of kids into into sports and and so on and and you know to her credit she has spoken uh, about when she was skiing in california she was the only girl on the ski team she was the only uh, asian on the ski team and and you know she wished there was a little bit more represent representation and so you know money aside and she's making an awful lot of money from from chinese sponsorship deals but money aside she can have more of an impact i think representing china particularly at these games where she is going to be a face of the games uh, than she would if she was competing for the states peng shui we haven't mentioned her yet one of the one of the ongoing sagas you know that that sort of that kind of almost represents this 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 tension between the west and and, and china and chinese sport the ioc of course have chosen to basically ignore it or almost facilitate China's management of this story, whereas the WTA haven't. They've gone the other way and they've taken this sort of moral stance. But you could argue that it was an easier stance for WTA to take because of COVID and the fact there weren't going to be many tournaments. And it was, uh, you know, someone might say, were they grandstanding? I'm not, but, 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 you know, a, a critic might. Whereas the IOC, of course, have got to work with China you know, they didn't really have much choice. And that is the explanation for their differing stances on Peng Shui. Is that fair, Mark? Yeah, I think so. Um, again, I'm not I, I'm not in Steve Simon's shoes, you know, the, the 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 head of the WTA to know why he did what he did. And, and it could very well be that he just quite simply felt it was the right thing to do. And, you know, the, the WTA was founded by Billie Jean King and it was basically built on women's rights and so on. And so it would have been a mutiny, perhaps, um, um, quite possibly if if they hadn't taken that stance forget the financial implications but yeah it's it's valid that the financial consequences today were less than they might have been uh, pre-covid for sure but i think that moving forward you know and this is something that i try and look at you know for whether it's teams whether it's individuals with with sponsorship deals and so on whether it's whether it's whole leagues everyone has a slightly different equation they have different stakeholders they have different priorities they have different goals and so only they can weigh up what is important to them? Are they just about making money? In which case, there's probably some Chinese companies that that will tell them what to do and, and will pay them for it. Um, increasingly, that that there's going to be reputational risk for doing that and for good reason. I guess my point is everyone has a slightly different, you know, inputs uh, into 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 how they're looking at China, um, and you know, so, so that that will come out with with different outputs in terms of how they engage if they choose to do so. But but overall, things are tipping away from the China markets because, you know, of the, of the, the sort of the reputational risk that, that we've talked about. William, what changes after the Winter Olympics? Well, you know, I, I think that um, we probably will see more uh, per- mass participation in sports. I do expect that um, the winter sports might become more popular. More people will be joining skiing and ice skating and things like that. I mean, it's worth remembering that China is a almost the size of half of a continent. Uh, and there's a lot of places where winter sports are possible. You know, I'm an ultra runner and uh, running and ultra races have become incredibly popular in China and 
have just been booming in the last few years. So I think we'll continue to see a lot of that. But I do think that the type of tension in terms of the sports and the and the politics of sports will continue. I mean, there's nothing to, I mean, this is a year where Xi Jinping will probably in the party Congress um, get the mandate to rule for life. Um, and this is gonna be unprecedented in modern Chinese politics because basically, you know, leaders have, have given over power after 10 years and he's gonna stay on after that. So this is a very, very sensitive year. And I think that even China has done a very good job with COVID by all means, they've protected life. They've, um, you know, they have a much lower death rate than the rest of the world. So I, I, I give them credit, but I think it's fair to say that they're also using the COVID rules to control the population to an extent. Um, and they're going to probably use this potentially for 2020 this year and, and, and for the years in the future. Um, in one way to protect the right to health, but also as a way to control the population, not allow people like human rights defenders to go abroad, to get new passports, to let troublesome people like me come into the country. It's mainly about politics, but it's going to have implications for sports and it's going to cause difficulties for, you know, uh, leagues trying to, uh, you know, have new deals in China or you know, race directors. Um, you know, I have a friend in Hong Kong who does race directing and used to fly to China all the time on the weekends to do races. He can't do that now. You know, so he's had to refocus his business elsewhere. So it's going to have disruptions as the, you know, I think there's no sign that the pandemic's going to wind down. There'll be new variants and whatnot. So this could last for quite a long time. And Mark, from your from your point of view, where, where does where does China go next with sports events? We heard from Matt about how maybe other countries, other sporting organizations are thinking, is it is it worth the hassle dealing with them? Do, do China continue to look at other, you know, Premier League and NBA and want to show them, broadcast them? Do China look externally to other events, a football World Cup, whatever it whatever it may be? Or or is it going to be going more internal? Short to medium term, I, I'm I'm not very optimistic, I have to say. You know. China is a political economy at its core. And so right now, sports ticks the box because the Olympics are here and, and that's a big political event. And so with those goals, with those political goals, uh, winter sports has taken center stage. After the Olympics, that's going to go away. And so, you know, we're not going to see that. Um, to William's point about COVID, he's absolutely right. There's absolutely no chance China's opening its borders um, anytime soon. Certainly not this year. And who knows beyond that? I mean, it could go on for quite some time. If I'm looking for positives, and I always try to look for positives, you know, that we, we have seen an organic growth in sports. And that's, you know, it, it, if it started from, from government policy, it's really now been taken up by the people. The, the 300 million number that's, that's um, you know, it's, that's bandied around is, is total garbage. It's absolute nonsense. But the ski slopes are, are packed. Every time you go, there's people there. And that uh, it's, it's genuinely really full. Always on the beginner slopes. Just shows that the people are, you know, learning to ski for the first time. I've lost count of the numbers of Chinese colleagues and friends whose, whose children are learning to play ice hockey and so on. So, so that's a positive sign. And I hope that that, you know, organically continues despite um, sports work sort of dropping off the priorities list. It is getting harder, I think, for foreign sports leagues to come into the chi China, particularly in the short term and engage. But hopefully there are some shoots. I mean, there's one thing I would say, a um, <laughs> little bit tongue in cheek, but Xi Jinping's known to be a football fan. So if he uh, if he stays in power for, you know, however long, well, then maybe that's 
maybe football <laughs> football benefits and they finally figure out how to uh, how to get a good team together on the pitch. I'm old enough to remember Tiananmen Square. I know people know people can't talk about it in China, but I I remember it. And I remember when I went along to Beijing in, in 2008, finding the place like a city in the West. You know, I was able to go out and get a beer and go for go for a meal and hail a taxi. And I didn't, I didn't, I'm not really into buying Gucci and stuff. So that was all in the shopping malls. But I mean, like, it had come a hell of a long way since my childhood. Do, do, do we sometimes, do we sometimes criticize China too much? I think... If you go back in history and, and sort of go up to 2008, China had come a long way and has made further progress since then. It just hasn't been the progress that the West either expected or hoped. And so from a censorship perspective, from a from a just sort of the, 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 the restrictions on society, the trajectory has, has not continued. And so I think if you if we're looking and we started off, you know, Mark was saying about bookending from one Olympics to, to, to this one, you can make a case that China has progressed in, in many ways uh, economically, for, for, for example. It's now definitely a more powerful nation. It's right up there. If it was announcing its seat on the top table in 2008, it's now, you know, writing out the place cards, if you will. Um, and it, it's just it, it, there's two sides to that, right? You know, China is is now a much more powerful nation and it, and it started to throw its weight around. Uh, and and the, there, are, there are real consequences to that. So, yeah, China has progressed. It's, 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 it's really complicated to answer that, I think. I'm looking for positives, but but it, it's, it's frustrating sometimes. It is. It is a bit frustrating. I mean, I, I, sports is such a great uh, way to bring people together. You know, I remember when I first came to China as someone from Denver, Everyone's like Butter, Butter, who is the a guy from Inner Mongolia, who is like a you know he wasn't even on the, the uh, a starter, but he was playing for the Nuggets and he you know he I think he scored like three points a game, but every person knew him, and they were so enthusiastic and they loved the NBA and you could bond immediately with people through sports. Um, you know I remember in the watching the the various World Cups where people would the ones um, in what 2006 where people would stay up. You know, they, they changed their whole sleeping pattern so that they were staying up till like, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., you know, to watch the game. So, you know, and I do think that in the West, there's often criticism of China that's done in really, really the wrong way. Um, you know, just this last I was seeing on Twitter yesterday where a U.S. congressman was saying we should seize all of Chinese assets. It's like, oh, what does that even mean? You know, there's all these Chinese business people in the US who have nothing to do with the government, you know, and he's basically insinuating that all Chinese people are, are participating in the evil of the communist parties, you know, and the government, which is really only happening in select areas. So, you know, I, I think that um, in the West, when we need to be very careful in how we talk about, you know, Chinese human rights abuses and Ch Chinese human rights violations and put the blame on the, on the, on the people who are involved and not kind of insinuate that all of China is doing this um, and try to focus on the positives, um, you know, the mass participation in sports and so on. So it's it's difficult, um, but I, I do think that there are some silver linings in terms of mass participation, um, even if kind of the overall picture is still um, not great. Absolutely fascinating to talk to you both. Uh, thank you for, for giving us your time this 
evening and morning and afternoon here as we cross all these time zones. Um, fascinating to talk to you. Uh, I'm sure we will talk again at some point, maybe once once the Winter Olympics are over and then we'll we'll reconvene and, and see what we learned. But thank you both. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, right, that's it. Thanks very much for listening. You can subscribe to The Athletic right now and get a 33% discount. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. And I'm back on Monday for The Athletic Football Podcast. The Athletic.